I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. Ada Calhoun's soulful investigation into the complex landscape women in midlife face today is downright stunning. Calhoun has captured the voices, some broken, some resilient, many barely staying afloat, of over 200 women from around the country, and in doing so, shown us how much we share in divisive times. This is a marvelous description by Susanna Kehalen of Ada Calhoun's Why We Can't Sleep. Ada is my guest today on The Literary Life, and I want to welcome you to The Literary Life, Ada. Thank you for having me on. I listen to this podcast all the time. I love it very much. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, all of us know that you're the author of this fantastic book, subtitled Women's New Midlife Crisis. But I first got to know you when you wrote the book St. Mark's is Dead, which is uh, a wonderful 400-year history of the New York City street where you grew up. And you've also written Wedding Toasts I'll Never Give. Uh, the way you stay married is simple, don't get divorced, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. Quote from my mother, who's very proud to have, have her words on the cover. Needless to say, this your career, just even by the by the book titles that we've just mentioned, um, is very varied. Um, your writing is remarkable. And the way you approach reportages in a way that um, 
you're basically kind of reinventing the style in a sense. Somewhere in the book you say that, I believe you say that you were born the year Passages came out. Was that you? That's right, 1976. In 1976. Mm -hmm. So Gail Sheehy also in her time kind of did a very similar kind of thing. So tell me how you came to Why We Can't Sleep and why you chose to write it now. Well, I'm honored by the comparison. Um, and it started with a story for Oprah.com. So I do a lot of freelancing for magazines. And I was having an absolutely terrible summer. This was in 2017. I had had a ton of freelance work fall through. I was like broke. And I was responsible for bringing in most of the money to the house. So I didn't know what we were going to do. And I just I felt really desperate. And this editor fortunately called and asked me to write about our generation. And I wound up writing this 6,000-word story um, that went pretty viral because it turned out there were a lot of other women like me. <laughs> so, so talk about those women like you. What were they experiencing? Well, what we'd grown up hearing a lot was um, you can be anything you want, even president. Um, don't be a nurse, be a doctor. The world is your oyster. And all of these things that I think our mothers really wanted to be true for us. Um, but the world did not change as much as they hoped it would to make those things possible. So what I heard from women um, now in their 40s was that they felt like big disappointments and failures, even if they were doing so much more in terms of work and caregiving um, than their mothers or grandmothers had. Yeah, in the introduction, you quote Hilary Mantel, uh, a wonderful quote where you say, you come to this place midlife, you don't know how you got here, but suddenly you're staring 50 in the face. When you turn and look down the years, you glimpse the ghosts of other lives you might have led. All your houses are haunted by the person you might have seen or been, I should say. Um, how do you think being and approaching midlife is different than what my generation as the baby boom generation might have approached it or um, how we approached it? I yeah. Should say. Well, one of my really good friends who's a boomer, Caroline Miller, she hired me at New York Magazine many years ago. Um, and I was talking to her when I was working on the article and she said, it's so funny, your generation basically invented stress. Because she said, she said when she accomplished all the things she accomplished, everyone was so surprised and so proud of her. Like, look at you! You're getting you're getting this amazing job, and you're running all these magazines, and it's incredible. Um, and then she sees her own daughters, and every time they have an accomplishment, it's it feels like not enough. There's just this level of pressure and and this sense that if you're not doing everything, doing it all perfectly, that you're failing. Um, so that was what I was trying to capture, just that feeling, that sense of, of despair over not having done enough. And, and certainly very different from how men approach midlife, right? <laughs> well, it's funny. You, you bring that out in the book there, as well. There's so much about male midlife crises, and I think they've been given so much attention over the years by, um, by novels and by movies, many of them with Michael Douglas starring, <laughs> um, and you know, there's the there's the sports car, there's the girlfriend, there's all that stuff. And um, and what I heard from so many women, and this I think is is intergenerational because I, I know that you know Gen X is not the first generation to have a hard time in midlife. This is when a lot of caregiving hits, menopause is no joke. Um, but what I kept hearing was that for women, it's often so much quieter. That that usually because they have so much caregiving to do, they wind up sneaking in any kind of suffering around the edges. It's it's true, and men are given um, 
men are given some latitude that women are not given. In other words, yeah. oh, it's only just a midlife crisis. You know, they're yes. just acting out, that sort of thing. Yeah. And, I, and I think that probably uh, bridges all the generations. That, 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 and particularly uh, women of the Gen X generation seem, and you brought it out in your book, they seem to um, be expected to do certain things. And I guess that's where the feeling that they didn't do enough comes from. Yeah. So one Talk woman, specifically about some of the women. Yeah. Well, so one woman after another told me um, that somewhere along the way, this idea that she could be anything morphed into this idea in her head that she had to do everything. That if she had a career but not a family or a family but not a career, that she was um, a disappointment. And that even if she had both, which a lot of the women I talked to did, um, that somehow it wasn't enough if the children weren't all like champion gymnasts and her house wasn't sparkling clean and she hadn't made it to the corner office. So there was just this sense of nothing ever being enough. Talk, talk to me about, I know that this is a very personal book as well, and that's why I think it kind of bridges so many different genres. So talk to me a little bit about your own midlife crisis yeah. and how I think somewhere in the book you say that this helped cure you to some extent as soon as you started hearing everyone else's stories yeah. and writing about it. It really did. It helped so much hearing other women's stories because I found that I wasn't alone, which it turned out was a huge part of the despair that I was feeling and a lot of the women that I talked to were feeling was the sense that everyone else had it all figured out. And I think social media plays a big part in that. You look around and you think, oh, everyone else is somehow figuring out a way to have vacations and smile and look young. Um, why can't I do those things? And so I think that just the camaraderie of other women and being honest about the depths of their experience um, made a big difference to me. Um, and um, I really love this book. You story. said you love. You said you love. You know, we're, <laughs> we're 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 recording this right in the bookstore at Books and Books. And the one thing Ada said when she said that she listened to some of the podcasts was, "Yes, I always like the background noise." <laughs> <laughs> yes, we are literally right in the middle of it all. Um, yeah, it makes me feel like I'm in Miami. I can close my eyes and <laughs> pretend I'm in Coral Gables and not in New York City. Um, so, yes, my midlife crisis. Um, I felt like. I had a bunch of credit card debt. I, I felt like I had no job stability. I felt dumb for having gone freelance. But then again, I tried to find a corporate job and couldn't find any. Um, and I, I thought, why? When I thought I did everything right and I've been working hard since I was 13, should this be so difficult? And then when I wrote the book, I found a lot of answers. Like there are, there are forces at work that are greater than us. And, um, and there's a reason why our generation has so much debt and so little job stability. Um, and, you know, costs are extremely high. And a lot of us graduated into recessions. And one thing after the other pointed to some really, ex some real extenuating circumstances that meant maybe it wasn't just that I had screwed up and that all these other women who were frustrated had screwed up. You certainly didn't screw up. <laughs> And neither did any of those others. Um, you know, it's really funny. I have a sister who's younger than I am. She just squeaks in as a baby boomer. Uh -huh. She was born, I think, in 1963. Mm -hmm. And it was so interesting to me because when she had read the book and she was talking as if it was a completely different generation, <laughs> even though it was only like two years <laughs> different, Yeah, which I thought was really interesting. The other thing that you do, which I think is your openness about this 
uh, I'd love you to talk about a little bit, and that is that you do recognize how different it is in different communities among people of color, yeah. among people of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Talk a little bit about that and yeah. how you chose to deal with that in the book. Um, well, that was something that was really important to me because a lot of the books that I'd read about about women of this age were usually just about a very small group of women, like women in Brooklyn, women in Los Angeles. <laughs> and um, and it was either like it was either white women or black women, or it was either um, rich women or poor women. And it was so narrowly focused. And then there was this claim being made at the same time that it was this universal thing. Um, so what I tried to do was was really identify the group I was talking about very clearly, which is middle class women. Um, I feel like I've done a lot of reporting on poor women and the number of obstacles in their way is so great that I thought this book is would be much longer. Um, and so I and then, you know, there's all these reality shows about rich women. So I feel like they're covered. But I feel like middle class women have this sense, and this goes across region and across race and across um across political party. Um we grew up with this idea that we were supposed to do better than our parents, that um, every generation has been upwardly mobile, and of course we will be too, and especially if we work hard enough. There, there are no, there's nothing in the way of girls becoming uh, astronauts and what have you. And then I think we've all faced some disappointment, many of us, at this stage of life. And so I worked really hard to make sure that the women I interviewed really looked like America, so that there are a couple hundred women. There are a lot of women of color. I think I got every state. Um, there are Democrats and Republicans. There are people who go to church and go to synagogue and are atheists. Like I, I think it's really important to point out what we have in common. You do that. You do that really, really well. So, talk a little bit about your methodology. How did you find these women? Well, it was actually great to do that story for Oprah.com first because- They found you. Well, after the story, them. hundreds of them yeah. did. But even going into the story, I was able to use the their social media channels to send out a questionnaire pretty far and wide. I reached like thousands of women that way. Um, and then I had them fill out these- uh, th these answer these questions, and then I got a Google Doc populated with all these things. So I was able to go through and pick a lot of women that I wanted to interview in person. And I also used message boards, and and I sort of tried to identify where the holes were. So, you know, if I didn't have anyone in Texas, I went out of my way to go <laughs> go find some Texas women. You know, tell me about any surprises that uh, that you stumbled upon. Um, I was really surprised by the commonality of the language. That women used across all of these boundaries. So, um, give me some examples. So, multiple women said the words to me, What did I do wrong? And, you know, one said, Like, you know, I always thought I was going to have this amazing career by now. You know, what did I do wrong? But I don't have that. And then, of course, her, her she's holding a baby. There's two, <laughs> there's two little kids running around. Um, so it's a matter of perception as much as anything else. What I kept seeing was everyone. Everyone was seeing what they didn't have right. and not what they did have. And that was that was pretty much across the board, something that I saw. How interesting that is. Well, I really focused on people who were having a hard time. So, um, so success for them was pretty much always elusive was my experience. So they they really saw these these they didn't see the obstacles in their way. They just saw their own inability to have achieved them. Um, so that's one thing I keep hearing now is that the people who read the book are like, oh, there was like a context 
for all of this. There were reasons why. I mean, for example, 40% of us were children of divorce, and that meant a lot of people didn't get college paid for. So you can be told, reach for the stars, but if there's no support behind you, then do you really have to punish yourself for not having reached the stars? Well, you know, we mentioned Gail Sheehy before, and, and what's so impressive is that this book has struck a chord the way passages struck a chord or the way books before that have as well. It's been a remarkable seller. It was beautifully published. And having your voice out there, I think, is very comforting probably to all those women who you didn't interview and who never kind of put it all together. So what have you heard from women since this book has been published? I just got, so every day I get this flood of emails and I got one today from a woman that I know who said that it was like that scene in Goodwill Hunting where um, Robin Williams is hugging Matt Damon saying, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's not your fault over and over again. <laughs> I look kind of like that. Um, what a great mantra that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm honored to be, um, to have that. Um, I mean, I think a lot of women just wanted to not feel ashamed like and I, I think that that they shouldn't. Like there is no shame in not having done something impossible. So my mother was an actress. She was um, in the movie Urban Cowboy as John Travolta's aunt. So that was my first Coca Cola was on John Travolta's lap, ah. Achilles <laughs> on the set. Um, and so she was in a lot of commercials and uh, and some TV and some movies. And then my dad was the art critic for The Village Voice. Uh -huh. And then, of course, he went on to become the art critic for The New Yorker. His name is Peter Sheldahl. Right. Um, so, but, so I kind of did We've sold I, many of his books. <laughs> good, I'll tell him well. he'll be happy. Please do. Um, yeah, and I like, I didn't want to do what he did. I was sort of running away from writing for a long time. And I, I worked at magazines because I babysat all the time. And a lot of the parents of the kids I babysat for worked in magazines. So they'd be like, when you're done here, go to the office and transcribe all my interviews. And so I wound up working at Esquire and Spin and some business magazines as um, like a copy editor, fact checker, or, you know, Girl Friday. We were talking earlier about what happened in the house that you grew up in just recently. Oh, yeah. You want to so, bring, tell us sure. about that? Boy, this fall has been terrible. Um, my So my dad was diagnosed with uh, stage four lung cancer. Mm. And then a month later, a fire started in the apartment below them on St. Mark's Place and destroyed his whole office and the whole back of the apartment and really most much of the building. So Terrible. It's been it's been rather unpleasant. So you've you've been a caregiver. Yes. You've been the advocate for your yes. for someone who's ill. I think that that bridges all all um, age groups, yeah. all generations. I mean, I know it's something that you know people my age have been going through now as baby boomers yes. and dealing with our parents. And I think nobody trains you for that ever. That's right. And nobody talks about it. I think you just, you know, somebody just vanishes for five years. You're like, where did they go? Well, maybe their parent got sick or their sister or something. So I know that I know that you do have a character in the book. You don't name their names, right? Uh -huh. And one of them is, is Florida Girl, in a <laughs> sense, right? There is a Florida Girl, yes. And uh, why don't you tell us a little, since we're in Florida, tell us a little bit about her. <laughs> She's very beautiful. <laughs> She's, um, you may know her. Uh, she basically told me my favorite quote in the whole book, which is she was talking about how it's terrible, right? All these things you're dealing with 
at this stage of life, and she had dealt with divorce, she dealt with you know money stuff, she dealt with health stuff, and um, that basically like it's all terrible. But she'd started to see it also as sort of fun, like. T- and then she said, "This it's like it's like it's terrible fun," and I just like loved that expression. I thought it's so Gen X, also just this way of like being like, "Yup, it's awful," but you find a way to find joy and humor inside the awfulness. For some reason, I have a feeling that's the way she approaches life. I think that is. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) Um, I also love the fact that each chapter, you start with a little bit of a quote from somebody that you've talked to. So it gives it a sense of a sense of life. And in the audiobook, um, I use the the actual voices of the women. Oh, you do? I use... Um, yeah, little clips from because the you had recorded the interviews. I recorded the interviews. Would you like to read a little bit? Oh, I'd be happy for to. us. Yeah. I would love to have you well, do. Do that. you have something you'd like me to read? Or just well, you know, I love the introduction. Well, let's do <laughs> if that. you want to just start at the introduction, because yeah. I think it. Sure. One woman I know had everything she'd ever wanted, a loving partner, two children, a career she cared about, even the freedom to make her own schedule. But she still couldn't shake a feeling of profound despair. She spent months getting a babysitter for her toddler daughter in the middle of the day, using the time to go alone to noon movies where she sat in the dark and cried. A former coworker told me that her impressive LinkedIn profile was misleading. In truth, she was underemployed and for years since her last layoff had been taking one low-paying gig after another. She's unmarried, never had kids, and while that part is okay with her, she has started dreading her upcoming 50th birthday, having realized that she will probably never own her own home and has saved nowhere near enough for retirement. A neighbor with a small army of adorable young children was doing part-time work she enjoyed. Her kid's father was a friendly, hard-working man. She was baffled by the rage she had come to feel toward him. She'd begun to imagine that divorce she might have a better shot at happiness. I'd leave, she said to me one day when I asked how things were going, if I had more money. Another woman told me she had started to fear that she would die alone. Just like her married friend, she'd gotten a good education and had a good job, had made a nice home and was staying in shape, but somehow... She'd never found a partner or had children. She woke up in the middle of the night wondering if she should have married her college boyfriend, if she should freeze her eggs, if she should have a baby alone, if she should do more or less online dating, and just how much more she could take of her friend's sons and daughters smiling on social media before she threw her laptop out the window. An acquaintance told me she'd been having a rough time working three jobs as a single mother since her husband left her. Determined to cheer up her family, she planned a weekend trip. After a long week, she started packing at 10 p.m., figuring she could catch a few hours of sleep before their 5 a.m. departure. She asked her 11-year-old son to start gathering his stuff. He didn't move. She asked again. Nothing. If you don't help, she told him, I'm going to smash your iPad. He still didn't move. As if possessed, she grabbed a hammer and whacked the iPad to pieces. When she told me this, I thought of how many parents I know who have fantasized or threatened this very thing, and here she had actually done it. I laughed. Yeah, my friends think it's a hilarious story too, she said, but in reality, it was dark and awful. Her first thought as she stood over the broken glass, I have to find a good therapist right now. <laughs> That's great. That's really great. Ada Calhoun, thank you so much oh, for writing, so this, much. writing this wonderful book and for being on The Literary Life. I can't thank you enough. Great honor. Thank you for the podcast. <laughs>